uh, once in a while we catch a glimpse of exceptional love and it leaves us awestruck uh, that it actually exists. And the, the glimpses are dim, but nevertheless they're moving and real and compelling illustrations of God. And these glimpses never fully capture God's love, but they certainly reflect it. I want to share with you this morning a, a video of a true story which exemplifies God's unconditional love. Now, it lasts about eight and a half minutes. Don't worry, the rest of my sermon is shorter because of it. But I want you to, uh, I want you just to take in this story and see what exceptional love looks like. me to read a couple of quotes from a man named John Piper, who's a, a well-known Bible teacher, and he talks about marriage and how it, this mystery refers to Christ and the church. And he says this, marriage is not mainly about prospering economically. It is mainly about displaying the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church. He says, knowing Christ is more important than making a living. Treasuring Christ is more important than bearing children. Either way, it is short. It may have many bright days or it may be covered with clouds. But if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows and no calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. The beauty of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and His church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. Ian and I first met in 2005 at college and had a blast for 10 months getting to know each other and I was looking through and I found one of my favorite pictures which I think was actually taken right before his accident. He set up a camera on his, his tripod. And it's just a classic Ian face that to me sums up who he is. We'd been dating for 10 months and he was working an extra job for his dad and he was on his way to work near Pittsburgh. And we got a phone call that he had been in an accident and we didn't know if it was when he got to work or on his way. And so we got down to Pittsburgh and I was just praying the whole time in the car that it wouldn't be his brain. After being at the hospital for a few hours, we found out that it was, and he had been in brain surgery for a few hours and had suffered a traumatic brain injury. 
God totally spared his life. Uh. One night, he was failing four out of five brain activity tests, and the next morning, he was doing well, and his brain was starting to respond again. I moved in with his family after the accident, so I was really involved in his therapy and just did whatever I could to make his life fun. We'd go out on dates, and looking back, it's weird because he couldn't talk and he couldn't eat. So we probably looked like complete weirdos being on dates, but we had a blast, and I just talked to him all the time. I knew that before Ian's accident, he was very serious about marriage and was ring shopping, so I knew where he was, and that helped me so much after he couldn't talk. I knew that he loved me, and I knew where he wanted the relationship to go because we were dating very intentionally. We just prayed that marriage would someday happen and watched all of our friends get married and start having families. That was challenging, but we just tried to hold out hope that that would be us someday. This is our board of gratefulness, and we encourage anybody who comes in to Write a note of something they're thankful for. It could be really small. Mine is just Saturday mornings. And it's just a good way that we've found to be just practicing gratefulness. And Ian, I think half of yours say <laughs> my wifey. <laughs> which is pretty cool. <laughs> We decided that we couldn't really consider marriage as an option until Ian was able to communicate. But if he could communicate with me, then we could have a marriage, knowing it would be really different. But as long as Ian could talk to me, then we could make it work. So once Ian began communicating, it became a little bit more of an option. And then we just kind of watched Ian progress. Uh, Hi, husband. Hi, uh, wife. How are you? Uh, Hey, how are you? What? How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. How was your day? Yeah. Yes. A conversation I had with his dad, it was one of those conversations where I realized this could happen. Then that August, his dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. And at that point, his dad's biggest concern was Ian and I. And whether or not we we're gonna get married or step away from our relationship. He wanted us to make a decision to move our lives in some direction. He passed away before he was able to see us get engaged, but that was a huge impetus in why we started to pursue engagement. Throughout premarital counseling, we just used this momentary marriage it was so helpful because John Piper talked a lot about primary things and secondary things, which is really important for us because when we're walking out our marriage practically, Ian can't do the secondary things like working or making a meal for me. Everything that's primary, though, he can do, which is leading me spiritually. Ian always comes back to the foundational truths of who God is and kind of reels me back in for my emotions, and that's the most important thing. We have two friends that we're going through the book with. I think we've just been able to help them see that maybe the little things that they're excited for about marriage are worth being excited about, but they're not the 
the end all and be all of their marriage. But we also have so much to learn and we're learning from them and things that they share because our relationships are different and we can glean different things from each other. I think what helped us in deciding to make this commitment to each other, at least for me, is knowing that Ian wouldn't have left me if the roles were reversed and that we love each other and we know that God's going to be faithful to our marriage. We're able to love each other with, I think, a more Christ-like love because of Ian's disability and just understand that picture a little bit better than if you were healthy. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. What about God enables you to have, have a happy marriage? You know. He's awesome. He's awesome? Well, this kind of love is foreign to the world because it only exists upon the bedrock of Christ's love for his church. This kind of love is supernatural. Did you catch the line? The beauty of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. Only Christ sustains that love. I've asked that uh, God would do something with this sermon, one thing, and uh, here it is, that you would come to know and to believe the love that God has for you. That's, I prayed for that, that you would come to believe and to know the love that God has for you. I want you to know it. I want you to enjoy it. God is faithful to love as he promised. All around us we see Uh, examples of broken promises and love. Wedding vows are broken by hundreds of thousands per year. Over one million parents fail to love their children each year by having them aborted. The courts are filled with cases of businesses who fail to honor contracts, and we would be careless not, excuse me, not to mention the empty and unfulfilled promises of politicians. Where is faithfulness and love? It's in stories like Ian and Larissa. That's where it is. But their story of commitment and faithfulness and love is an illustration of a greater commitment and faithfulness and love. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. A little background as you turn there. God would free his people from slavery and give them the promised land. But there was a problem. Seven mightier nations, idolatrous nations, controlled the land. God therefore would use Israel as judgment upon these nations and they would destroy all of them, including their religious trappings. Then comes Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9. Watch how faithful God is to honor his promises. Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So God set apart Israel um, from all the other nations. Continuing in verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
So out of every nation on planet earth, God freely chose Israel as his treasured possession. Now, why did God choose Israel? Were they better? Were they stronger than the other nations? Well, God's word says, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. So it wasn't their size. It wasn't their strength as the purpose of why God chose them. They were last place. So why would God choose Israel? Verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose Israel because God loved them. But verse 8 also mentions an oath that he swore to their fathers. A few chapters later in Deuteronomy 10, 15, Moses writes this. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. So God freely chose to set his heart in love on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, The love of God drove him to establish a covenant with them. And he would be faithful to honor his promises. God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt because he loved them. Back to Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is faithful to love as he promised. Now you can summarize the word covenant in this way, this was God's covenant, Exodus 6, 7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Finally, we see a picture of faithfulness and love, someone honoring their commitment. This is pure, unconditional love. The gospel is all about a holy God pursuing and taking a bride for his own precious possession to have and to hold forever. That is the gospel. Well, why does God love so much? Why is he faithful to his promises? Because God is love. God is love and he proves it. Turn almost to Revelation to 1 John 4. The passage that Cass read for us this morning. 1 John 4, almost at the back of your Bible. What does John write in verse 8 and 16? You know what he writes? If you check it out, he says it twice. God is love. God is love. Now, if a young woman tells you that she's an artist, how are you going to believe that she's actually an artist? Well, she'll prove that she's an artist uh, through what she puts on the canvas, that you can see, God proves his love through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our confirmation. 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Now pause there. Here is how God proves his love. John continues. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live 
through him. So the love of God was put on display through the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. But there's more. Check out verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God. Stop there. God does not love us in response to the love that we give him. That would be conditional love. Verse 10 says, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves us first. He takes the initiative. He moves after us. How? By sending his son as the wrath-appeasing, perfect sacrifice for our sins that reconciles us to God. The cross is God's way of loving you. So if you have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, what he did on the cross, by default you have faith in the love that God has for you. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. To truly believe that God loves you is to believe that he expressed that in the crucifixion of his only son. The apostle John absolutely believed that God loved him. Because God proved it to him through his best friend, Jesus. He saw it at work. When you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation and depend, make sure you hear this part, on nothing that you have done. Nothing. All Jesus know you. The action is on Christ's part. When you trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation... It means that you believe that God really does love you. Saving faith includes trusting that God loves you. If you follow Jesus, be confident that God loves you. Don't fear that he doesn't love you. Don't fear that he will walk away from you and somehow reject you and break his covenant that he made. Trust him. John continues, verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in the world verse 18 there is no fear in love but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love if you have trusted christ be confident and never fear never fear but if you live in fear You have yet to be perfected in love. If you're constantly fearing that God somehow doesn't love you, you got to wonder, have you been perfected in his love? That fear is a refusal to believe and trust in the love that God has for you. Then John says something very significant, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. God makes the move. He makes the first move. He takes the initiative and he pursues us. Now, I'm pretty much guaranteed on this point that each of us has a story of how someone has failed to love us. We've been broken. We've been beat up a little bit. Someone has failed you along the way to love you as they should. These are stories of neglect. These are stories of abuse. These are stories of discouragement. And these stories are painful. These stories are dreadful. But you know what? They're also understandable. You see, human love is broken. It's imperfect. But God is 
love. His love never fails you. His love never disappoints you. His love never fades for you because God is love. That is his character. So let's go deeper into God's sacrificial love. Jesus loves the church so much that he gave himself to win her. He went to work to win her, to gain her, to get her, to pursue her. The world would tell Larissa, you deserve better than Ian. Think of what you're giving up. Larissa would tell the world, no, Ian is my gain. Did you know that marriage was designed by God as a picture of the love that Christ has for his church? Turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. We're going to see how profound marriage is. You know, theater and film, they, they can't recreate reality. But they can try to depict it somehow as closely as they can. But it's always incomplete. They are shadows and still frames. And this is marriage. It's a dim view and reflection of the divine love Jesus has for his bride, the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How many women would not totally flourish under that kind of love from their husbands. He's constantly laying his life down for her, giving himself up for her, serving, being selfless for his beautiful bride. And this is our Christ. The love of Jesus is sacrificial. That's what husbands should do for their wives. They should give themselves up for their brides. Real men do this. Why did Jesus give himself for his bride? Verse 26 and 27. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Isn't that awesome? That is love, extravagant love. He died for her so that he could cleanse her and present her to himself. Flawless, holy, splendid, radiant. From the gutters of spiritual prostitution to the altar as a spotless bride. The sacrificial death of Jesus does this. This is a model for you husbands. It's a model for me. I see some young guys who might be approaching marriage before too long. This is your ambition. And girls, if they don't model this, they're not the one for you. All right? Yeah, dump them and get rid of them and find a guy who's going to be Jesus to you. Amen. The guys are like. And I say yes because the scripture says yes. Your marriage will be horrible if you don't. Verses 27 through 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Man and wife become one flesh, united as one, and we are united to Christ as one. He cares for us. He prizes us because we are one with him. Then in verse 32, Paul writes, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage was designed to display the mystery of Christ's love for his bride. Jesus saw a rebellious girl, an undesirable girl that no one wanted. And he went after her. And by lovingly laying his life down, he took her and made her clean and restored her beauty and brought her to her loving father once again. This is the love of Jesus. This is the extent that God will go to express his love for you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. What act of love could possibly rival the heartfelt and poignant sacrifice of Jesus for his church? Let me ask you a tough question. Have you been looking for this kind of love in the wrong places? To be loved is to be the bride of Christ. In that act of love on the cross where Jesus carried out the love of the Father for the church to win her and justify her and sanctify her for himself, he also gave, lovingly gave her the gift of life in him. God loves you so much, he made you alive. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been... God made you alive because he greatly loves you. Way back in the 1980s, I was a huge fan of this little cartoon series called DuckTales. I don't know if any of you remember this. Love DuckTales. And Scrooge McDuck was the wealthiest duck in the world. And, and he lived in, uh, what was it, Scroogeburg? No, Duckburg. Duckburg. And uh, up on the hill in Duckburg, he had this towering vault. It was bigger than any other buildings of the town. It like looked over the whole town. And uh, this is where Scrooge McDuck filled his vault with his incredible uh, wealth. And it was all in gold coins. I don't know why, but that's, that's what it was. And it uh, wasn't locked in trust funds and, you know, whatever. Co- coins, I guess. And so what he would do is he would enter into this vault, and there was a platform up there, and he would just dive off into his money. And he would land in it and swim around in his money. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to understand how he didn't break his neck landing on the coins. This duck would be dead. But anyway, it's a, it's a really silly image But I see a strange spiritual parallel here. God is filthy rich in mercy. He has infinite storehouses of mercy. He is vault upon vault upon vault of compassion and kindness. And with his affluent mercy and for the sake of his great love, he made us alive. Alive. And the the more deeply that you study the Bible, the more plainly it should become that God chose to love you. God chose to love you. God's love is truly, in the perfect sense, unconditional. Unconditional. Katy Perry, I almost put her song in here. It's a song about unconditional. I shouldn't have even mentioned it. But anyway, so even the world, that's a culturally relevant thing to say that the world is thinking about unconditional love. All right? It's not like, what's that? No, they want that. 
Her song's twisted, though. There's some lyrics that are like, that's not it. Anyway, check it out if you want. Uh, Nothing in us obligated God to love us. God's love for us is not contingent upon something that we do. Instead, it came when we were dead in sin. The reason that Ian and Larissa's story is so powerful is that their love was built upon God's covenant love through Christ. They chose to love unconditionally. When the world runs from disability, Larissa committed her life to it. Why? Because God chose to love and he keeps his promises. And she was going to make one and keep hers too. Remember that God chose Israel out of all the nations, not because their strength or prominence, but because he loved them. Turn to Ephesians 1.4. Ephesians 1.4. It says this, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice Paul didn't say that God chose us because we were holy and blameless. He didn't even say because we would be holy and blameless. He chose us despite of our blamefulness. Paul continues, in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, predestination is one of those emotionally charged words. People get all worked up about it. So I want to give you a little background of the word quickly. Proorizo, that's the Greek word, or predestination. It's a compound word, bringing two words together. Pro is a, is a preposition meaning before. And orizo is a verb meaning to fix or appoint or designate a person to come to a definite decision. Now, when you put them together, what you get is to fix or appoint or designate a person beforehand. So in Ephesians 1.5, God predestines or appoints some before creation for what? What does it say? Adoption through Jesus Christ. God sealed the adoption of believers before they ever believed. They, be, they believed because they were sealed before the world began. And Paul tells us why. In love, he predestined us for adoption. He wanted to predestine you to adoption. And so he did it. Look at verse five. Now, some Christians believe predestination is cruel. And it makes God into a malicious despot. But we have a problem because Paul did not think that. Paul believed God's love caused predestination. In love, God arrived at the orphanage of sin and oppression and chose to adopt you and give you a new name and new clothes of righteousness and to apportion his warm affection upon you according to his loving nature as father. God chose to love you. He wanted you for his own, so he saved you. Nothing can change that. Nothing can reverse that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. God will never take you back to the orphanage and say, she's too much for me. Never really wanted him. I was just trying to be nice. God doesn't do that. Nothing can reverse the legal adoption paperwork. Children forever. And when they become children, just a matter of personal holiness here, they don't live like hell. They live like children because God changed them to live like children. 
So don't go thinking, oh, well, they made a wreck of their life. Well, they probably weren't children. Even though they said they were, they were just trying to belong maybe. But the paperwork was never filed. The cross preserves the love of God for you. It preserves it. Turn to Romans 8, 35 to 39. Romans 8, 35 to 39, where Paul asks a really good question. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? And his answer is stunning. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is so pure, so powerful, so persevering that it depends on nothing but his character of love. If God's love was like worldly love, like we see in our culture, it would depend on our appearance or aptitude or appeal. But God's love transcends the love of the world because it flows from the wellspring of his character and not our aptitude or appeal Because his love for us flows from his immutable or unchangeable character, nothing is capable of separating you from the love that God has for you. Nothing. Nothing. After a long list of things, unable to separate us from God's love, Paul ensures that he didn't miss anything, and so he says in verse 39, nor anything else in all creation... He's leaving no room here, folks. He's saying, look under the sun, you're finding nothing in all of the expanses of our great and grand universe that will separate you from God's steadfast, forever love. You are united to Christ through faith as the object of God's love forever. Friends, if you trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation and treasure him in your heart, this Christmas and forevermore, then you can be confident in this, God loves you so much. And he will keep you in his love forever. The recurring message of the Psalms is God is good and his steadfast love endures, what? Forever. Forever. Why reject Jesus? Why turn away from Jesus and remain a child of his divine wrath? Why not trust Christ and receive the lavish love of God forever? Come to Christ and find yourself loved by a perfect father There is one gift that I know will make all the difference for your Christmas this year, the love of God. And so I hope you enjoy his love the most over everything else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your love. Thank you that you have uh, given us everything in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray, God, that we will treasure him above everything else this Christmas and that we can truly look to his incredible sacrifice in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.